A podcast where we go one-on-one with fiction creators, such as authors, filmmakers, actors, songwriters, and more. Each episode, we get the inside scoop on our guests' creative process, the ups and downs of their industries, and our guests also give out tips and tricks that help them become successful. And now, let's jump into the episode with your host, Chris C.L. Lowry. All right, all right, all right. Welcome back to the Fiction Addiction Podcast. My next guest, his writing and publishing career began in 2009 with the release of his debut title, Crew Love, which he released under his self-published imprint, Bleeding Pen Publishing. Years later, he would move to Indianapolis, Indiana, where he would open Malia Solange Books, a brick-and-mortar bookstore that catered to independent authors. He switched genres to crime fiction and released titles in the Black Love Detective series, which consists of Peacekeeper, Cannibal in the City, and Body Bags, Last Rites. After three years in business, Malia Solange Books closed his doors, and he renamed and rebranded Bleeding Pen Publishing to Malia Solange Books. Ladies and gentlemen, Antoine Floyd Sr. Antoine, what's going on, bro? What's going on, man? How you feel? Man. I'm good. How you feeling, man? I'm great. I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Uh, thanks for being here, man. So, so how how has this global pandemic t- uh, affected your life so far, man? Uh, I don't know, man. It's it's the act, to tell the truth, man. It's been kind of good because I've been getting a lot of writing done, and mm. um, I don't know. I'm just viewing life differently. It, it makes me appreciate my freedom more. Because once this is all over, I'm going to do more things that I took for granted before this lockdown. Yeah, absolutely. So what what has been one of the most surprising things in this pandemic? Obviously, we got so many things have changed. They put in quarantine and lockdown in some cities and states. Um, the market runs aren't the same. People are masked up, gloved up. Some some stores have restrictions that you must wear masks. So what's been the most surprising thing? Um, through this whole pandemic that you've seen? Um, I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't say surprising because I kind of expect that. But first thing that pops to mind to me is how quickly we adapt. How quickly we adapt. We find ways to entertain ourselves. We find ways to earn money in a different fashion than we did before. So it's it's not really surprising, but I still just love maybe maybe the way that it surprises me, the way that people come up with the ideas to do these things. But it's not surprising that we do adapt so quickly. So Mm. that's what comes to mind for me. Now, you mentioned you mentioned it a little bit when you said you've been writing, but how how are you staying creative uh, during the quarantine? Um. I guess that that kind of goes back to the the question that you asked me before um, about some things that I'm doing because th- that kind of slipped my mind. I, I actually paid for um, I don't know if you, you're hip to this, but uh, master class. Oh um, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I got the master class. 
<laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I paid for that. I, I, I wasn't. I've been procrastinating on getting it for a long time. I'm like, well, I'm in the house now. I might as well. So, I've been watching um, Dan Brown. You know the guy who did the mm. uh, the Vinci Code. His, yeah, yeah. His his master class is really good. So I've been watching that, and I've been watching some on James Patterson and Neil Gaiman. So oh, yeah. that's what I've been. That's what watching those guys and hearing how their process of how they write, um, that kind of inspires me. So that's where I've been getting some of my inspiration from. Yeah, Arl Stein, his master class on there is, is real good. I was like, damn, he, he breaks it I'm gonna, down, man. <laughs> I'm going to have to check him out. Who is Earl Stein? I'm uh, going to check him out. Uh, the Goosebumps, the writer of Goosebumps. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, so he when he breaks it down, like his writing and creating Goosebumps, creating those type of characters, you know, those stories were all crazy when we were younger. So he breaks all of his mm-hmm. writing down. Oh, man, it was, it, it was, it was good. It was real good. Um, I'm going to check him out. Yeah, definitely. So, um, as we know, being an author is a brand. It is a business. So, how has the pandemic affected you as a business owner? Because um, some people I've I've spoken to, man, it's been a good thing because people are quarantined. They're buying more books. But some people, it's been a negative because you got book expos, book festivals that are now being postponed and canceled. So, that's messing up a little cash flow right there. So, what's what's been happening with you? Well, I am not that savvy when it comes to my internet sales. Um, so the plus side to that is I have been trying to study more and figure out different ways to try to boost my my Amazon sales. But right. on the other hand, like you've been said, like you just said, as far as the the um getting out in the streets and going to these book expos and stuff, I'm trying to stay positive and just wait. And wait it out and see what I'm gonna do. I mean, not what I'm. I know what I have to do, but wait it out until the storm is over. But right, I mean, exactly right when I got on lockdown in my state, I had just put in a shipment for 500 books. Damn. I was prepared for the summer. Yes. Damn man. <laughs> yes, my books came. <laughs> so I'm sitting here with all Damn. these books in my living room. All these books. And I'm looking online. <laughs> yes, I'm looking online. Like the first week when I got put on lockdown, I'm looking online at some of these expos and stuff at different events I want to go to. And each one I'm looking at, they're getting canceled, getting canceled, getting canceled. Damn. I'm like, oh man. But like I said, I'm just gonna hold out, wait until the storm is over. I I I have faith that it's gonna work in my favor. Right, 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 absolutely. So when did you find out uh, you had a passion for writing? Um, I've kind of always known. When I was younger, I used to um like. I kind of knew when I was real young, I was, I don't know, I don't want to call myself weird, but I was a different kind of kid. I stay like 10, 11 years old as a game. I used to sit down and put and make up my own products like dish soap or whatever. And I write my own commercials for them. So I knew at that age that I, yeah, I was kind of a weird kid, so I knew I, I I knew I could write, but you know it wasn't on my radar for real. 
But then when I got a little older, I started uh, rapping. So I knew I could do that. Yeah, then I moved into, when I became an adult, like in my 20s, I started doing poetry and I was doing spoken word. And then um, by the time I graduated from high school, I didn't know what I wanted to do in life. So I went to school for different things. I went to school like the culinary arts. Then I went to be a director. Then I went um be a bartender. Then I, I just kept jumping from thing to thing. So right, right. I, I started writing screenplays. That mm. was like in my 20s too. And I moved to uh Hollywood. I was out in Hollywood for like a month. I didn't know for anybody real? there. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know anybody Dang. there. I didn't have no money. I got off the bus and went around the corner to a um I was registered with this pro with this staffing agency called Pro Staff. And Pro Staff, I don't even know if they're still around, but back in the day, they were um in like all the states. They were in every state. So if you were registered in one in one state, you'll go to another state and your name will be in the computer. So I went there and they got me jobs and I was working. And I was working so much to pay for hotel rooms that I didn't have time to shop my script. So mm. on Sundays, I didn't work. And this was so long ago. This was when Borders was around. You remember Borders books? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would go in there on Sundays on my day off. And while I was in there, I saw John Singleton. You oh, know the, snap. Uh, yeah. Absolutely, and I, yeah. <laughs> and I did not have my script with me. Oh. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> so after being there for about a month, I got frustrated and I went back home. And uh, I came across this book written by Quan called Hoodlum. You know, mm. the urban fiction author. Oh, yeah, Quan the Beast, man. Yeah, so I read it. And I'm like, because I had read those type of books years ago when I was a teenager, but it was the older stuff. I, I used to read Iceberg Slim and Donald Goins. I read all of those books. So when I saw um, Quan's book, I didn't know that those books were still in fashion. I didn't know that they had came back around. So I was like, oh, I can do this. So I turned my screenplay into my book. Oh, and yeah, and... I did a lot of studying as far as trying to go traditional and go self-publishing. So I just decided to go self-publishing. And that's when I released that book in 2009. That's and, crazy, man. Yeah. And and you know how I said I jumped from um, trying to go from career to career, trying to figure out what I wanted to do? After yeah. I finished that book, I didn't want to do anything else. So that's how I knew I wanted to be a writer because I didn't jump to something else like I did all the other things in my life. Mm, that passion just took over you. Yeah. That's crazy. You ever you, you ever hit Quan up and be like, yo, bro, you know what I mean? You don't even understand your book. <laughs> like, <laughs> the no, difference maker, you know what I mean? Man, you <laughs> no, I never hit him up and told him that. Guess that's Maybe crazy. one day I might cross paths with him one day. Right. <laughs> so when when you begin writing on a serious level, I, I know you said you started doing the research for uh, self-publishing and things like that. Was that always the vision for your writing career or did you ever consider um, trying to take the traditional route? I, I did consider the traditional route, 
But all of the books and stuff I read said that, okay, say your first book comes out, they give you an advance, and they're going to put some promotion money into the first book, but if it doesn't sell after the first month, they stop putting money into it. Then they said, if you want your book to really sell and for the publishing company to put more money into it, you're going to have to promote it yourself. Yeah, for yep. people to start buying it, and then once they see people are making money, then they want to put more money into it. So my ideology was, if I'm gonna put money into it, and then still have to get them a cut, I'm just gonna try to do it myself, and I can keep all the money. Right. So that's right, why right. I never tried. Now, you came from Hollywood. Um, you decided that hey, listen, I'm gonna turn my screenplay into a novel. How different was that writing it? Because for those, obviously, the people who are listening, writing a screenplay and writing a novel are like two differently, yeah. two totally different things. So how how different was it for you adjusting from the screenplay life to the uh, novel life? I had to learn to not put screen directions in the in there, and I had to learn how to be more descriptive. When you write a yeah. when you write a screenplay, you don't have to be descriptive. You just have to write the dialogue, and you loosely write the action. You don't have to write a lot of action because, as a matter of fact, when you're learning how to write screenplays, they tell you not to write action because that's what the director is gonna do. The director is gonna take your script if you're not directing your own. The director is gonna take your script because they have their own vision, so they're not gonna really look at your action for real. So you're supposed to just write the dialogue. You can write the scene as far as where it's going to take place at or the location. I mean, you can write the location, but they don't really want you to write the action because that's the director's job. So when I had to write my book, I had to learn how to be more descriptive. Hmm. Do, do you ever regret leaving Hollywood? Not really, because... I, I may have made it, but when I say I was out there bad, I was out there bad. <laughs> I oh, mean, really? Like I had, yeah, I was out there bad. Like, I literally had to work every day because I didn't have a permanent job. I had to work every day because it was a, uh, a daily labor job for I work and I get a check. So I had to work to pay for hotel rooms and food. Mm. So if I would have stayed out there, I would have, I don't know. I, I, I might have made it. I don't know. But I don't regret not staying out there because a lot has happened to me since then. I was so young. I was in my 20s. I've grown a lot now. So mm. I don't I don't regret it, no. So you, you actually dropped a couple books, man, since since your first release. How do you stay consistent when it comes to writing? Um, I don't know. It's hard for me to explain. It's I just get inspiration from. Well, when I could go outside, I get inspiration from different things. <laughs> <laughs> like ideas just ideas just pop in my head all day. Like I'm just constantly putting notes in my phone to write later, and I still believe that. 
I'm going to make it to the level that I want to make it at. And I haven't made it yet. So that's kind of what keeps me inspired and keeps me going. And what level is that? I am still not doing this full time. I still work a job and I still do my writing and traveling and selling books at the same time. So I want to get to a place where I'm doing this full time and I'm earning six, seven, eight figures. Mm. Speaking to existence, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to, I want to own another bookstore again. You know, mm. I miss having my bookstore. So that's, that's what I, that's the level that I want to make it to. Many times we, when we talk to, uh, full-time authors it's, it's always after the fact um they always give us their story so i just want to know like what's that feeling like now knowing like you know what i mean working at nine to five but knowing where your 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 passion is where your heart is um what's that feeling like walking into obviously a, a job establishment knowing you really truly want to be somewhere else like you said owning your bookstore and owning your book it could be frustrating and it can be motivational at the same time, at least for me, mm. because it makes me get up two or three hours earlier than I need to and write in the morning before I go to work. And while I'm at work and people say things to get on my nerves or annoy me, it automatically clicks in my head like, you need to. Get on the ball when you get home from work. Start writing again. You need to step your game up. Unless you want to keep working here. Right. You know. (laughs) So those are thoughts that go through my head. What's your writing routine? Do you need a certain type of vibe to keep going? You need certain snacks? (laughs) You know know what I mean? What's what's your writing routine? I don't know. I just need a clean space. I need, and I need to do it in the morning because my best ideas come to me in the morning. I don't need, I I need quiet. I need it quiet. I can't write with music playing or the television on. And that's about it for me. I need quiet, clean. And every now and then I need a new location to write. Mm. Um, so I don't just keep, I don't know. I just need a a different environment every now and then. So I I, I might write in my bedroom. I might write in my living room. I might write in my kitchen. So I just need different, a different space. What what do you think? What about the the change of location? What, what do you, why do you think that's so important in terms of your writing? I don't know. Um, I don't know, but when you just ask me that question, something just popped in my head from what I heard, and I might give this a try. I heard, what's my man's name? I was talking about Dan Brown. You know, he writes um, the thrillers, so it's kind of fast-paced. And he said a lot of his ideas come to him while he's walking. And he said, so a thriller, y'all, is fast-paced. In the book, the characters are always moving fast. He said, you look at television shows, nobody's ever standing still. They're walking somewhere. They're moving. Mm. It's fast paced. 
So he said what he does is, I'm going to try this too. He said when he's writing, he has some type of app. I can't remember the name of the app. He said he has an app on his computer that every hour the computer will automatically shut down for one minute. So he says, you said you can't stop it. The app just shuts it down. He said when it turn, when the computer turns off, he'll get down and do some push-ups just to get his blood uh, going, get the yeah, adrenaline that, that pumping. Moving. Yeah. I'm like, that's, that's kind crazy. of a good idea. Yeah, he hell said, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he said it, 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 you know, it gets the adrenaline pumping and gets your, your, your brain waves moving, the blood moving in your body. And he said when the computer logs back on, then he'll sit down and start writing again. The ideas flow. You know, more smoothly, more they they come through a little better. Damn, that's hot. Yeah, everybody should be trying that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, whatever get them ideas flowing, man. You better. <laughs> yeah. Mhm. So, for someone who's been in the game since two thousand and nine, how is life for you as an independent author all around? How is this industry treating you? The industry gives me what I put into it. And I will be honest. To this day, I do not feel like I have gone 100%. So Really? It, yes. So it gives me what I give it. To be honest, I've gone halfway in, halfway out. Because I, I know a lot of authors. And the ones who are doing this full-time are the ones who took a step out on faith and they just quit their jobs and just went full time. So that's why I say I get out of it, but I put into it because I haven't taken that step of faith yet and stepped mm. on out there and just did it because in my mind, I know I can earn the money. I know I can do it. I just haven't, you know, built up the, the courage, the tenacity to step on out there and do it. Right. Because when I travel, I do well. I, 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 the part I love about it the most is actually talking to readers, talking to mm. the people out there on the street. When I sell my books, I'm that, I'm in my element. One of my best, um, one of my best attributes is customer service. Mm. So I, I don't. My my thing is like when I used to have my bookstore. I did book signings every weekend for like three years straight with a different author, different independent authors. Yeah. And I had a lot of first time authors. So I would tell them, you're not selling your book. You're selling yourself because mm. the people who are going to come past Dang. here, they've never heard of you before. They don't know your book. So if they buy your book, they're not buying it because you're a good author. They buy it because they like you. Hmm. Damn, break that down so more, I, man. <laughs> break yeah. that down more for for more. Yeah. Not selling your book. You're selling yourself. New right. Mm-hmm. So that's what I use when I go out there. And I also learned that they are just people. So you gotta look at all these people. Like they say you can't judge a book by its cover, but most of the time you can. So you gotta look at these people, depending on who your your audience is. And kind of size them up quick. And when I say that, I say you can probably look at these people and talking to them for a few seconds, they'll probably remind you of somebody who related to you. So just treat them all like family. 
Right. That makes you feel a little more comfortable. People don't people like confidence. And no matter how good your book is, if you act like you're scared to talk to them, they're not going to buy it because you don't even seem like you even have confidence in your own product. Damn. I had to learn all that the hard way. Why you say that? Because when I first started, man, it's so funny, man. Well, it's funny to me. My first book, Crew Love, I was in Minnesota. I knew I had to get out on the street to sell my books. So I had my book bag. Um, I was at the Metrodome. Yeah, I was at the Metrodome. Was it the Metro? Yeah, the Metrodome. Yeah, Minnesota, the Metrodome. So I'm at the Metrodome. Tyler Perry was in town. He was doing the Medea. He was doing the Medea. And I had a homeboy who used to go out there and play the drums on the street. He hustled, played the drums for tips. So I'm out there while the play is going on, waiting for people to come outside so I can sell my books. And I'm talking to my homeboy. He getting his, he doing his thing or whatever. So people come past and I'm all timid. I'm like, excuse me, excuse me. And people just blowing right past me. Like I'm not even standing there. <laughs> that, so, for real? So, yeah. yeah. So, so, so my guy, he looking at me laughing. He like, man, he took my books from me. He like, man, let me show you how to do this. He like, support your local black author, support your local black author. And people stop like, hey, what you got? What you got? And they just throwing them the money, throwing them the money. Oh, <laughs> so, so I'm like, <laughs> he like, that's how you do that. I'm like, all right, man. So a few seconds later, because that happened during intermission. That was when he did that. So people went back in. Then like maybe an hour or two later, the play was over. But right before the play was over, I seen um, these two guys roll past with suitcases. You know, the kind you roll on the wheels? Mm-hmm. Big, huge, big, huge suitcases. And they unzip them. And they pull out big armfuls of uh, Medea t-shirts. And right when they pull them t-shirts out, the doors flew open. The streets got flooded with people. And they like, <laughs> get your Medea t-shirts, get your Medea t-shirts. And when I saw that, that shook all my timidness. Because I'm like, they don't have mm. enough people not going to spend money on a t-shirt and my book. So right, right. Oh, yeah, like, it's competition now. Black author. <laughs> 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 I was loud. I was like, support the local black author. <laughs> Yo, so that kind of helped me shake my timidness. Yeah, <laughs> hey, you that, was thrown right goes, into that, the fire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because that, that just goes to prove. It's been said for years, way before I was born. Closed mouth don't get fed. Get fed, man. Not at all. <laughs> now, notice uh, you call yourself the, the king of crime fiction. Break that down for us. That is my speaking it into existence. Mm. I saw I saw Lil Wayne long before he called himself the best rapper alive. I mean, long before people called him the best rapper alive, he called himself that. Mm. So I'm just taking that, you know what I'm saying? I'm just going to keep on saying it, keep on saying it, keep on saying it. I put it online. So I tag myself with it. That's another part of my little um, trying to make my mark too as far as having content. 
So whatever content I put out there, I put that on there and I um, tag it and hashtag it. So if people pop, put my name in, that might pop up. Or if anybody put in King of Crime Fiction, even if another author has that, my name still might pop up in the algorithm. Right, right. So I use it for those two things, to speak it into existence and to tag it with all my content. Now, what do you think separates your writing from other authors? Um, I'm not the first to write in this genre, but I don't think that there is a lot of black males writing in this genre as far as as far as mm. mystery books as far as mystery books um there are some but there's not a lot it wasn't even a lot back in the day because i i'm constantly looking for stuff so that's what kind of separates me from that is because i i don't write the hood books i used to try to do that but that market is so flooded it's a lot of competition in that market so right. the fact that I'm writing my books about a black detective, that kind of separates me from everybody else. Mm. Now, even outside of crime fiction, what is your take on black male authors? You think there are enough out here? I think there are a lot because, you know, I'm um independent author. And when I had my bookstore, I dealt with a lot of independent authors. There are a lot, like there are millions of them. But as far as even mainstream, there's a lot. But or should I say mainstream to to black people? Because I work with a lot of white people, and they never heard of none of these authors. But right. in our community, a lot of people have. So it's a lot of them out there. Now I will tell you this. I remember seeing Dame Dash in a lot of interviews. And he said he don't really like to work with men. He prefer working with women. Because men, they come in and they want to try to be the boss. <laughs> women, they going to work with you. Y'all can probably be partners or they can work up under you, but they don't come in and try to take over. Mm. I That stuck with me because when I had my bookstore, I'm telling you, I love when the women authors come to the store. They hustle way harder than men. Oh, yeah, they, they, they hustlers, man. Yes, women get it in. What do you think is, so what do you, <laughs> what do you think needs to be done for not, not just black male authors, but black authors to get on the radar of all readers, not just in the urban community? Because the stories are good. The stories are there. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the quality of the stories are there. You got some writers out here with excellent, excellent work. So what do you think needs to be done to get us all on the radar? I don't think, to be honest, if it is something that we can do about it, I don't know. But in my opinion, I don't think there is anything we can do about it. Because from where I, from where I see, people are biased. Readers are biased. So it doesn't matter what the book cover look like. It doesn't matter. Well, it kind of does matter what the book cover look like. But if, in my opinion, 
a lot of white readers or non-black readers, if they see that a black person wrote the book, they're going to automatically assume that it's not for them. Mm. Even though even though they automatically assume that the stuff they read is for everybody, but they will assume if it's written by a black person or if it has predominantly black characters, they will assume it's not for them. Like, I'll give you an example. I remember uh, I was talking to this lady. She was a white lady. And we was having a conversation about, well, she brought it up to me, about um, Tyler Perry movie. Uh, I can't remember the name of that movie. It was one of the movies where, uh, I cannot remember the name of the movie. But it was with a wealthy, I think he was wealthy in the movie. Somebody was wealthy or up. You could tell he wasn't, like, poor. And she said, I saw this movie the other day, a Tyler Perry movie. I'm like, yeah. She was like, you heard of it? I can't remember the name of the movie. I'm like, yeah, I heard of it. And she was like, yeah, it was like, you know, white people, but they were black. So Which movie was that? What she was saying was, <laughs> <laughs> because it was um it wasn't one of those Medea movies it was another one it was one of them other movies where it had like different actors in it I can't remember the name of it though but basically what I got out of that was she only viewed black people in a certain way not having you know wealth or carrying themselves in a certain fashion so I think that's what my whole point for telling that story was. I think some people, non-black people, when they see um, a book written by a black author, they automatically assume that it's not for them. They won't mm. relate to it. That's my opinion anyway. Right. Now, you, you created your own publishing company uh, when you released your book. What was, what was uh, the story behind the name? Bleeding pen. Um, like I told you, I used to be a uh, you know, a rapper and a poet. So bleeding pen sounded poetic to me. I'm like, that's tight, that's cool. You know. Mm-hmm. And it had um, you know, a double meaning, kinda like, you know, um a pen when it's broken it bleeds. You know. Mm-hmm. And then I say, Well I'm writing, you know, my pages, you know, they bleed onto the you know, my story bleeds onto the pages. So that's what made me come up with Bleeding Pen Publishing. Now, if there was one thing you would have done differently from the moment you finished your first manuscript until today, what would that one thing be? Um, I would have jumped out there years ago. Oh, when you were younger? I would have jumped out there. Yeah. Yeah, I would have jumped out there years ago. But I think a lot of st- I had some other answers for that, but I think it was all learning experiences because everybody had to learn. But Absolutely. some of the other stuff that's more concrete, I would say I would have hired editors um, earlier on. I would have um, hired, I would have found me a, a a graphic designer that I could 
you know, that I would keep for years. I would have established a team. Like, I still don't have a team. That's been the hardest part for me, having a team. Mm, why do you think it's so hard? I don't know. Maybe. I'm starting to wonder if it's just me. <laughs> but... <laughs> what you mean? <laughs> <laughs> like, I have a hard time um, relinquishing relinquishing stuff. Trying to, I try to do everything myself. That's yourself, yeah. Yeah. You got to start taking so, off some of that weight, man. You got to start delegating people yeah, to do I know. certain stuff. <laughs> I know. So, but other than that, everything's been a learning experience. It made me better, more seasoned. And I keep writing books and releasing them, even if they don't do the numbers I think they should do. Because all it takes is one. Oh, just absolutely. One. Yes, yeah, just and everybody one. gonna go back and buy all my old stuff. Now you you touched on it uh, just a moment ago in terms of you would hire editors uh, sooner. So what was what was it? Did you have a specific experience that um, that that brought that to your attention? Uh, what, what, what's the what's the importance of the editors in your writing uh, journey now? Yes, my first book, Crew Love, I didn't have an editor. And my my um reviews are still on Amazon. They were all pretty much the same. It's a good story, but he should have hired an editor. It's a good story. Mm. It looked like an eighth grader edited this. It was a good Damn. story, but it was, a, I know, <laughs> they went in. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> I uh, know they went in, and I'm not embarrassed by it. It's funny to me, right? Absolutely. Now it's man. funny, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, right it was back then. Experience. Yeah, yeah. So I could have saved myself steps along the way and put my best foot forward when I was first starting. Now, what was that moment like? Obviously, like you said, it's funny now because it was a learning lesson that helped you grow as a writer, um, and you built obviously your craft and developed your craft more from then. But what was that feeling like then? You know what I mean? Back in 2009, you, you, you put your book out, put your blood, sweat and tears, and then you start getting these reviews. You know what I mean? How'd that feel? It was, it was exciting to me. I kind of thrive off of, um, um, not negativity, but off of, uh, constructive criticism. Well, okay. and, and no matter how harsh the, no matter how harsh the words were that's the way I viewed it because I don't know if your listeners might who are writers or you yourself you're a writer who might go through this but it's very hard to get people who you know to read your stuff mm. so the fact that somebody had even read it and then took the time to leave their opinion on it I valued all of that those were jewels Dope mindset to have. You know? Yeah. Because it is hard to get people you know to read your stuff. Strangers will read your stuff quicker than people you know. Absolutely. Say that again. <laughs> yeah. So Why do you think that I, is? So I didn't, because people, you see you a certain way, but then the world sees you a different way. And people who know you and who grew up with you, 
and you didn't, you wasn't doing writing your whole life, or even if you was, but you took the step to actually produce something, you have a product, they still don't see it. They they still don't see it as taking it serious. They still don't take it serious because they know you, they have a different view of you. Mm. That's just how it is. I just feel like people don't really take you serious until you get rich or famous. Right. It's like that with everybody who's into the arts. Like if you're an artist, um, like you like to paint, you're a musician, you're a rapper, you're a writer. Hell, even if you want to open up your own restaurant, whatever you want to do, nobody take you serious until you start making money. Now, so you, you, you talked about the editing process a little bit. Well, take me through the process of finding your, your designer for your book covers. And what you were looking for as a writer when when looking for a designer to, to to match your style. See, that's another thing right there when I say I needed to um delegate more. So my first book cover, I was on the internet. And I was just getting familiar with the internet for real. I didn't really mess with computers that much back then. So I was just starting to get familiar with Google and all that and searching and stuff. So <laughs> it took me a, a long time to put my book out because I had to pay people over the computer and I was nervous about sending in my money. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> so, so I'm like, oh man, I do not trust this. I'm gonna send these right. I can't like they live all the way in Atlanta. <laughs> I'm gonna get to live up there and do my stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, That's a fact, man. Yeah, yeah. So my first book cover I paid for, this lady did it. It didn't look that good. And I didn't realize that. I was just happy because my name was on the cover. Mm. So I didn't even have a home computer. So I used to do my stuff on the computer. No, I take that back. I did. This was this was how the 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 the, the uh the struggle was real for me. So I had this old laptop and it had a floppy disk. This is how long ago it was. It had a floppy Damn. disk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I used to write, and it was right when floppy disk was going out of style. So I used to write on my computer. I saved it on the floppy disk, but I didn't have the internet. So I go to the library, and the library computers were so old. I mean, was was starting to update. They didn't even have a floppy disk, so they had like an adapter. So I would ask for the adapter from the um, librarian, and mm-hmm. I would plug it into the computer. So one day I was at the library, and I had just paid for my book cover. And like I said, I was just happy because my um, my name was on there. And I asked one of my cousins, I'm like, how does this look, man? He's like, yeah, that look cool. That look cool. And that's another thing you don't need. You don't need people. You need people to be honest with you. <laughs> right. You need people just to tell you something just to get you out of there. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> I really had, I really didn't know. I, I need an honest opinion. Because like I said, I was right. just happy that my name was on there. So I'm in the library and this girl walked past. And in my mind, I might be wrong, but I just have a, I guess it don't really matter what she looked like, but I just felt like, Attractive women are more blunt, they're more honest. 
So this lady walked past and she looked good. So I was like, excuse me, miss. And she like, yeah. I'm like, I know she thought I was going to try to holler at her. She like, right. yeah. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I pointed to the computer. I'm like, if you've seen this, if you've seen this book in the store, would you buy this? And she looked at it. She was like, no. I was like, all right, thank you. <laughs> all right, thank you. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so oh, I had dude. already spent my money on, I had already spent my money on that book cover. So I'm like, okay, that's money gone. So that's when I started um, looking at, that was around the MySpace days. And I've seen people book covers on there. And all the hood book covers. That was before the hood book covers really, really got like popular. Yeah. And it was by most of the covers I used to see that looked really good was by this lady named Davida Baldwin. She had um her company called Oddball Designs. So I contacted her and she did my book cover for Crew Love. And that book cover mm. turned out really nice. That, that book cover was really nice. But I know I took a long way around, but to answer your question. I got Photoshop and I started doing my book covers myself. Oh, for real? And yeah. And some of them looked okay. Most of them didn't. You know? So now I'm starting to hire somebody to do my book covers. But I did my book on book covers for a long time. Mm. You was doing yeah. everything, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was I was doing my own. I typeset my own books. I was doing my own book covers. I was trying to save money. Now let's talk about the bookstore journey. Take me back mm-hmm. to when opening a bookstore for you was just an idea. What originally inspired that idea to open a bookstore? Okay, so when I moved from. Minnesota to Indiana, I was working and I had my book still and I used to go over to this mall by where I live called Washington Square Mall and I walked through the mall selling my books, just walking through there, just selling them on my book bag. Mm. So then, but, but this was kind of a dying mall. So I used to talk to this guy. He was he sell oils up in there. He was the oil man. And I asked him, I'm like, is it hard to get a a, a booth up in here? And he was like, no, all you do is just contact the manager. So I contact the manager, and the rent was so cheap. It was like super cheap. So I got a kiosk. You know, I was paying like $75 a month. I got a kiosk. Uh-uh. And but I was still working, so I would come there after I got off work, and I'd be in there from like five thirty to nine o'clock when the mall closed. But then I work all day Saturday and Sunday, open the close. And like a year later, I upgraded from my kiosk to a bookstore, like a inside the store. And when I did that. At first, I picked a bad location in the mall because, like I said, it was a dying mall. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't getting a lot of foot traffic. But then I moved to a different location, 
and that joint was jumping. Really? Yeah, it was doing good. But it wasn't doing good enough for me to quit my job. No, I was going to say I had a lot of fun in there because, like I said, that's when I started having my book signings. I didn't know that I didn't know the store was going to be a success until I did my first book signing. I did my first book signing at the kiosk, and it was about this author. Her name was Lady Katesh. She was from out of Chicago. She contacted me. And ask if she come do a book signing. I'm like, I'm not really doing book signings right now. I'm waiting until I build up my, my customer base, my, my clientele. She's like, I don't care. I just want to get out there. I just want to do my, you know, do my thing. I'm like, my in my mind, I felt responsible for the authors. I'm like, I don't want them to come here and not make money. Right, like I right, said, it was right. a dying mall. It was a dying mall. I'm like, it's not a lot of foot traffic. I don't want them to come here and not make money. Then they'd be looking at me crazy. But she was like, <laughs> she was adamant. About, yeah, she was adamant about it. So I'm like, all right, come on. She came and she was a hustler. Really? She got out there. <laughs> yes. Because I didn't sell that many books. You know, I sell some books here and there. But. She was a hustler. She sold like how many books did she sell that day? She sold like fifty books that day, and she was charging fifteen dollars a book. I was only charging ten dollars. She was charging fifteen dollars. They was paying it, and she sold fifty Damn. books. Yeah, I'm like, oh, I can make money in here. <laughs> <laughs> so I started having book signings. You know what I'm saying? So that's when I realized that I can I can I can do my thing up in there. That's crazy. Now where'd you get the name yeah. of the book from? Malia Solange book. That is my daughter's name. Her first and middle nice. name. Yeah. Yeah. Now how now how important was that then, obviously having a, a staple, you know what I mean, in a mall in your city n- n- named after and dedicated to your daughter? I thought it was important because um, I even had the, when I had my logo made, I had it made of a little girl with an afro reading a book. And I thought that was important. And some of the other people who own businesses in there, they kind of tried to discourage me from doing that. Because they were like, really? Yeah. Because they were like, um, they thought that it might alienate some of my customers, my possible customers. And I was like, I got offended. I'm like, no. I said, I sell books. And if they feel offended because it's a little black girl as the logo, they don't need to come in here anyway. I said, mm. I still go and eat at Wendy's. I said, I still go right. eat at Wendy's even though it's a little white girl as they logo. That's fact. Yeah. So. That was very important to me. Now, what was that first moment like when you when you took her there and she saw her name up there and uh on the signs and in the in the, the store dedicated to her? But she has never seen it. Like she never seen the really? store. 
she lives in yeah, she lives in a different state. Uh, but she saw the logo, and she was just surprised because she was a little younger back then. She's twelve now, so she was what nine back then. It's been about four mm-hmm. years now, so she was eight, and she was she was happy and she was surprised, you know, because she saw it. She's like, "That's my name." <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that was cool. Now, why was it important for you opening this bookstore um, to cater to independent authors? Because I am an independent author. And to be honest, I feel like, well, at that point, I was a little naive, but I felt that we got shitted on. So that's what made me want to go hard for the independent authors. Bookstores don't want to put our stuff on the shelves. Um, they don't want to, a lot of, when I say bookstore, I'm talking about like Books a Million and Barnes and Noble. They don't want to put our stuff on the shelves. They didn't want to uh, host book signing. So I'm like, okay, this is the place where they can come, especially if they're like first-time authors. This is the place right. where they can come and, and get their feet wet and make some, possibly make some money. Be represented. How long, how, how long was your bookstore open? Like three years. Three years. What, what, mm-hmm. what was that feeling like when you had to finally make the tough decision to close your doors um, of your business? And why? Why did you have to close down? So while I was open, I had my son here. He would work with me on the weekends. And I always said once he left to go away to college, that I was going to close down and I wanted to move to Atlanta, Georgia. I've been out there a couple of times to do book signings at another bookstore. And I just felt like the vibe out there was better for people oh, yeah. trying to do I'm what I want to do. The, yeah, the support would be better. So once he finally went away to college, I said, okay, I'm going to go ahead and close on down. So, cause I, I didn't want to do it by myself. Like I said, I wasn't making enough money to pay somebody else. So I didn't want to, I was paying him, but I didn't have to pay him much, you know, right. and other people, other people, they're going to want their money. Even if I don't make money, they don't want to get their check. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you you know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they want, they want all that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. I just closed on down. Now, the the feeling, the, the way that I felt, I felt kind of relieved to be closed. But after I closed, after a while, I missed it. Because mm. I, I had a lot of fun. I built up a fan base. I mean, not a fan base, a customer base to where people, I had repeat customers. Like, right. like you said, I became a staple. And... People people really mess with me, and they got used to coming there and meeting new authors every weekend. And I, I don't know. I just learned that you, if you want it, like I said, if you want it, you got to grind. And it used to irritate me so much. It used to irritate me so much that it's a lot of authors here in Indiana. In Indianapolis, it's a lot of authors. Really? And I could not, yes. 
I I say out of a hundred percent of the authors here, only ten percent will come and do book signings. Mm. Why is they that? Have right here in the sink. I think either it's lack of confidence or I don't know how it is where you live, but here a lot of people hate on their own state. Mm. So they will probably and plus like I said, it's a dying mall. Even though if you put in the work, you can make money there. I think they looked at it like, man, don't nobody go to Washington Square Mall. I ain't going there to sell my books. But then somebody had come here from New York and they sell 50, 60 books. That's crazy. So it was just it was just embarrassing. Even though I'm not really from here, it was embarrassing to me and kind of it seemed kind of stupid to me. I'm like, how you let somebody come from another state and make money in your own state your own and you state, don't make man. money? Yeah, so that used to just trip me out. It was kind of funny. I'm like, and it used to happen. It happened a lot. Now, was there any discussion about running the bookstore online after you closed the actual physical doors? Um, no. Some people asked me that, but I didn't want to. Another thing that I learned too, like I said, I um when. The authors used to come here. I told you I like to deal with the women authors over the men authors. That was one of the issues I had. Then another issue I had, I, I you know, I got people books on consignment. And when I said when I first came into this, I used to be kind of naive. Because I said, it's, I'm, I want to represent the independent authors. I want to represent the independent authors. Now, I wasn't paying people for these books. I was doing it on consignment. So, right. right. Um. The guy, he was kind of like my mentor. He owned a clothing store in there. He the one who got me really, besides um, the lady who came and did the first book signing, he was the one who, he before she came, he was the one who was telling me that I need to have them authors up there. And I didn't understand what he was saying before until after the fact. And he was like, they not thinking about it like you thinking about it. He was like, they sitting at home with their feet up, and you got your books, you got their books here, and you selling them, even though you're getting a cutoff of them. They're going to call you a month or two. How many of my books you done sold? Can you send me my money? And they sitting right. up with their feet up. They ain't even putting in the work like you're putting in the work. So I got a part of that when I used to have people books in the store, and they didn't want to come do book signings. So, because that's why I make most of my money, because I was getting a commission off of their book sales. So that's how I was making a lot of my money. And plus, I can sell my own books better than I can sell your books. So if you're oh, here, yeah, you can sell more books. You know what I'm saying? If you're here, you can sell more books. So that's why I didn't want to do the online thing. Because I'm like, I don't want to push somebody else's product that hard. That's crazy. Yeah. Now They're not going to put in the work. Oh yeah, they're not gonna put in the work. You know what I mean? So you, you, you can't do it for them in, in that sense. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? If you they gotta put some type of work in, and it gotta be like a collaborative effort in terms of getting the books. Yeah, I mean, they should have been they should have been promoting the store just as hard as you were promoting their books. Right. But it's a learning lesson, man. Another le- <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now your book, but Peacekeeper. Mm-hmm. So let me break down the synopsis real quick. So black love was always 
a white collar kind of guy more so than a gangster. When an unfortunate incident occurs in a small town in Illinois, he rushes to the side of his ex fiance to attempt to save the day. It doesn't take long to figure out that not everyone wants to see justice served. On top of that, his feelings for his past love may not only cause conflicts in the case, but also add to a rift to his new relationship. Will Black put his past behind him and find out who violated Teresa? In this fast-paced tale of pain, misguided passion, and love loss, we follow these three souls as they embark on a journey of romance, rape, and retribution. When there's no one to count on but yourself, will you stand and deliver or bend and break? Each will face that question in the midst of what he or she once thought was true. They all find out that when love turns to war, someone has to be the peacekeeper. So first things first, break down that title mm-hmm. of the peacekeeper for this story. So that goes back to my poetic days. I like to play on words. And people, when they hear peacekeeper, they automatically think of P-E-A-C-E, like peace, mm-hmm. opposite of war. But I like to play on words, so I spelled it P-I-E-C-E, keeper, which a lot of people know peace is another word for a firearm. Yep. So he's the peacekeeper. He keeps his peace on him. Now, what was your mindset when you created the character Black Love? Um, <clears throat> for lack of a better term, I feel like this generation is the pussification of the black male. Mm. So, black love, his name is a strong name already. Black love. That's a strong name. So I wanted a strong black character. He is a alpha male. He is this generation's shaft. He gonna mm-hmm. do the right thing. He gonna do the right thing for his people. He gonna get the girl in the end every time. And he's gonna beat people, not just physically, but he's gonna outthink them. So that's how I came up with this character. Now, now walk me through writing the opening scene for the first chapter because obviously it involves the the crime of rape. Um. How did you tap into both the victim's aspect of this crime being committed when you were writing it and also the offenders? Because it was well-written, you know what I mean? It just seems like this entire book was well-written. You, you definitely did your thing on it. So, but break me down Thank in you. writing. How do, you, how do you dive into these scenes and these characters when you're writing such a powerful and emotional scene like that one? You know, when I wrote it, when I first sent it to the editor, she told me that the scene was more shock value than it needed to be. And mm. when she first said that, I didn't view it that way. I wrote it that way because I learned when writing, just like with I learned with, I was going to say with music, but I just stick it to writing. I learned with writing, especially in this day and age, when people's attention span is so short, 
I learned that if you don't grip them, if you don't if you don't hook them in within the first within the first page, the first or second page, they may not continue your book. So I wanted that. That's why that scene is so graphic like that. But after having so many people read it and they all have the same interpretation, like you just said, like it's very um, vivid. Like I've even had some women tell me that reading it is a trigger. Mm. Cause they've been through stuff like that. I didn't view it that way. I wasn't, I wasn't um, very sympathetic writing it as far as, or not sympathetic, empathetic writing it from looking at it from a, um, a male's point of view versus a female's point of view and how that might affect them. So that brought me back to what the editor said to where it's more shock value than it really need to be. I could have written that scene to where it wasn't as graphic as it was. But when I first wrote it, in hindsight, I see what she was saying. It was shock value. But in my mind, I was doing it to hook people in. So that's why I was written that way. Do you, do you think writers need to be empathetic in terms of uh, scenes like that or situations like that? Because we a, a lot of a lot of back and forth goes on with comedians and they talk about comedians. Do comedians need to be censored on certain topics? Do you think the same thing uh, applies to writers or or? Does that is that shock value important in books that we that, that were once out? Well, first thing I want to say is I don't believe in censoring anything, you know, because I could have went back and changed that. Even like now, I could still go back and change it, but I'm keeping it because that's the, the 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 frame of mind I was in when I wrote it. So right, I don't believe absolutely. in censoring anybody. I don't believe in censoring anybody. I don't think to come in like. Even if people say stuff I don't agree with, that's what the world is. The world is made of all different type of people. You know, it takes all different type of people to make the world go around. So, no, I don't believe in censorship. I don't think people should be sympathetic or, or empathetic um, when they do their craft. It, it's their art. You know, it, it. some of the things people say might be kind of foul, but, you know, we... You just got to take it. You know, that's just what it is. Now, now, how do you tap into that mindset? Because I spoke with another author and they talked about uh, she actually writes uh, psychological thrillers. So she gets in the mind of, of, of sociopaths and sometimes it's first person. And she talked about having to decompress after writing certain scenes because she was in that mindset. Uh, do you feel, do you feel that you have to do some of the similar things with some of the graphic uh, scenes and and uh, that are involved in crime, obviously killings and things like that? Do you ever find yourself having to decompress coming out of writing certain scenes? No, I don't have to decompress. I'm I'm pretty cool with that. My thing is trying to find more creative ways to say the same things that other people may mm. be saying. Right. You know, but as far as decompressing, no, I'm I'm cool. I, I don't think my stuff I I've learned to take a a lighter tone with my writing because I've learned that you don't have to be as graphic to make people feel it. Hmm. Break that down in terms yeah. of not being as graphic. 
Because you you do come from like, both sides of film and and uh, being an author. Yeah, it's like I said, like as far as that scene that you were talking about before, how I described how the woman was being um, sodomized. And I could have written that without going through the steps of her actually being sodomized. Right. So that's what I mean by that. Like, you don't have to be so graphic. I could have still got the point across without being so visual. Like, because the way I describe it, you can actually visualize that happening. And mm-hmm. I could have been more creative with writing that. I could have alluded to that. Like you see sometimes in movies where the scene that cut right off, the scene that cut off right before the crime actually happened, and now that you leave right. what's about to happen up to the, the person who's watching Imagination. Mm-hmm. You can be creative with your writing in that way too. Now, now, what do you think makes your writing so real? Because along with that scene, you also had scenes of confrontations between lovers. You had the hospital scenes afterwards, like you know what I mean. Everything felt so real. Mm-hmm. It felt like you were you were watching the show. It felt like you were there in a sense, especially with the lovers. You had you had every day. One the way you described it, you like yeah. Everybody done been everybody that ever been in a bad breakup or anything like that or, or torn between <laughs> two people. You, you you knew like oh yeah that's that's authentic. So what 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 makes your writing so real? Um, just life. You know, uh, some of the stuff, you know, I've been through bad relationships. I've been through good relationships, you know. Um, So I just take elements of some of that stuff and I incorporate it into my writing. You know, um, these people, and when I say these people, I mean the characters in the books are people. You want people to relate to them. You want people to like them or you want people to hate them. So... I just thought about the different reactions that people would take if they were in those situations, not just apply them to the stories. Now, if Peacekeeper became a film, what actress and actors would you cast as the characters? I don't know, because I used to think about that when I first wrote it, and I can't even remember who the people were who I thought of play the roles. I think for um what was her name? Uh Teresa. For Teresa I would want Nicole Bihari. You ever heard of her? Mm, yeah, yeah. Nicole Bihari. Um people who never heard of her, she was the the lady who played in she was the black actress who played in Sleepy Hollow, the T V show. Mm-hmm. Um her uh I used to want, but he has a bad name now for himself. I used to want it for Black. The guy, I can't remember his name, but the guy who had played Easy E. Oh, yeah. Uh, Jason Mitchell. I think his name is Jason Mitchell. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he got, yeah he's a good actor, man. <laughs> yeah. That would have been yeah. perfect, though, like the, the build, the height and all that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then I thought, I only thought about three characters. I thought, um, those two, and then for the father, I wanted James Avery. Mm. Damn. And the only reason I wanted him, only reason I wanted him is no, is his name James Avery? No, not James Avery. I take James that Avery back. James Avery from uh, the guy who, Fresh Prince. 
from Fresh Prince, Prince, not him. Yeah, yeah. I'm th- I'm thinking about Avery Brooks. Oh, okay, okay, okay. And the reason I thought of him is because he used to play Hawks from um Spencer Spencer for Hire. Mm-hmm. The old TV show back in the day, the detective TV show. Hawks yeah, was the yeah. black guy on there, and he was a detective. And I'm like, that'll be kind of cool, you know. So that's why I thought about him. All right, absolutely. So what what's next for you, man? What's 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 next? What can we expect coming up? Well, I'm gonna still continue with my Black Love series. I have so many titles for that. Um, I'm working on some scripts. I'm gonna start producing my own films, Mm, putting them on Amazon. I'm gonna put them on Amazon. Um, I want, I don't know, and I know somebody may steal this idea, but put it out there anyway, because probably be a long time before I get to it. But I've been watching a lot of um Netflix. So I watched this show called Designated Survivor. Mm. And that's what Kiefer Sutherland is about when it's a political TV show. Um basically everybody in the Congress gets killed in a bomb. And he's the secretary of HUD. So he was the only person who survived who was in the long, you know, you know, when the president died or you have the president died, then the vice president, then the vice president died, then somebody else. And it was he was like number nine on the list, number 10 on the list. Everybody else was dead. So he became the president. So that TV show and West Wing, another political show. There's a lot of political shows out there. So I had the idea. I said, I want to write a script for a TV show that's all black. That's a political show. Mm. And I would base it around the Black Caucus. Mm. So I thought that would be a good idea. So I'm kind of toying around with that. But I have some other ideas. So I think I'm gonna, my thing is I'm going to start working on some films. Yeah, that'd be dope, man. Take, take another, take another yeah. crack at it. Yeah, and you know me with this time I'm probably hire people, but you know I'm gonna produce the I'm gonna produce it myself. Right. Now tell everybody where they can where they can find you at, where they can order your books at, where they can reach out to you at. Well, on my social media across the board, uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, it's just Antoine Floyd Senior. Put that in. You can find me on any of those. My, you can find my books on Amazon. Same thing. Put in my name, Antoine Floyd Senior. Or if you want to get an autographed copy, you can go to MaliaSalange.com and get my books off of there. All right. This was the Fiction Addiction Podcast, and this was Antoine Floyd Senior. Antoine, we appreciate it, bro. Thank you, man. I I had a great time. Thank you for joining us on the Fiction Addiction Podcast. Make sure you visit fictionaddictionpodcast.com for links on everything we talked about today, as well as awesome resources, additional tips, and fiction addiction merchandise.